we are going to be in chapter 2, verses 12 through 32. We're covering 20 verses. Sounds like a lot, I know, but I will, I will take it from here, and I'm going to bring it right down here for you guys. I'm going to try my very best to uh, make, it, make it make sense, be, be clear, um, and, and we're going to grow t- together today. Amen? All right, so uh, just where we're at right now, um, we, I just want to set this up, trying to just give you a little preference, some context as well. First, uh, we saw in 1 Samuel cha- uh, chapter 10 that Saul was Israel's first king. And then Saul, he disobeys God on numerous occasions. We see this in 1 Samuel chapter 13 and chapter 15. Um, David is then anointed as the new king. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, Saul refuses to give up the throne and tries to kill David instead, also 1 Samuel. And then Saul dies in battle, which was near the end of 1 Samuel. Then we get into 2 Samuel, and David is anointed the king of Judah. Uh, Abner, which was Saul's general, sets up Saul's son Ishbosheth as the true heir to Saul's throne. And then, uh, and it is in this climate of hostility that we begin to walk in this morning, catching up here, starting in verse 12. Verse 12 here. Now Abner, the son of Ner, went out from Mahanam to Gibeon with the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And, uh, and Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Then Abner said to Joab, now let the young men arise and hold a contest before us. And Joab said, let them arise. So they arose and went over by count, 12 for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. Each of them seized his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is in Gibeon. So what this, to paint the picture, basically they're in a battle, and, and instead of doing a whole on like, hey, let's take all of our armies and fight each other, they just do uh, what they call... Um, I, I forget the name actually off the top of my head, but it, they just take the 12 and 12 and just make it a small battle. And whoever wins that basically wins the whole deal. So as the nation of Israel is embroiled in this controversy that is surrounding which man is the true king over God's people, we read here that it is Abner and Ishbosheth who make the first military move. They move their army from Mahanam, which is located just a number of miles to the east of the Jordan River and well to the north of that. And they move their army south and west to Gibeon, only a few miles away from the border of Judah. And this right here is a direct challenge, and David's army knows it. And so we read that David's commander, Joab, he goes out to meet Abner. But when the armies, they square off, they square off near what is most likely a man-made reservoir, and uh, this supplied water to the city of Gibeon. And actually, archaeologists found in the 1950s, I believe it was 1956 to be exact, um, that this was discovered, this, this, this valley, this reservoir that was man-made that actually supplied that water. Um, and when these, finalies, or when these armies finally meet, it is Abner who actually suggests what's called representative warfare. So that's the word I was thinking of earlier, representative warfare, um, basically just taking smaller groups and then that's gonna decide essentially the battle instead of bringing everybody together here. And this is where they, they're only using a handful of their soldiers on, on, on each side. But here, all 24 soldiers, all 24 of them, they all die. 
essentially. Every single one of them they, talks about they grab them by their heads and their swords, their seas and their swords into their sides. And it's, I don't know how that happens, to be honest. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like, I, actually, I wanted to do a sermon illustration by trying to use like one of my friends to let me stab him. Not really. Uh, I do have a really cool sword that I forgot to bring down. Um, but it's, they're just like, they're grabbed by the head. And you just imagine each of them having a sword and they're going in the sides, but then they just both fall. So it's like, it's not a fair. Every single one of them dies here. And the key to this passage may be the numbers. Since there are 12 warriors from both sides, and since there were 12 tribes in Israel, the outcome here may be God's way of communicating the tragic nature of division and civil war among his people. And we look at, I mean, we could see that today in our world, right? We, we see, like, we're all made in his image. Now, is everybody a, a child of God through that? No, because you, you have to accept the adoption that he wants into, that he wants the adoption into his family. You have to accept that. We're all made in his image. So we're all God's people, but not everybody in this world is followers of Christ, right? But that's like taking, you know, Republican versus Democrat, heterosexual versus homosexual, young versus old, church versus church, you name it. The list can go on and on and on. And this is the civil war. This is the division that I believe Satan, the father of lies, and, and father of division, he loves, he thrives. He, Satan is rejoicing when there's division amongst God's people. He is rejoicing when there's civil war going on among God's people. And we must remember, church, we must remember, it's not a battle against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and principalities. But when Satan can intervene, when he can put his hand in between God's people and have us fighting each other instead of what really matters, what truly matters, he is winning in that sense. And we must remember that. So when we're fighting against maybe people in this world, it's not about we're fighting the people. Really, we're fighting the culture. The culture is a sin culture. And we as a church are continuously fighting the sin culture. So whether somebody's living in sin or out of sin, we are not fighting the people themselves, but we are fighting the culture of which they live. Amen? We're going to continue on in verse 17 here. That day the battle was very severe, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were, were there, Joab and Abishai and Azahel. And Azahel was as swift-footed as one of the gazelles which is in the field. Azahel pursued Abner and did not turn to the right or to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and he said, Is that you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. So Abner said to him, turn to your right or turn to your left and take hold of one of the young men for yourself and take for yourself his spoil. But Azahel, he was not willing to turn aside from following him. Abner repeated again to Azahel, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother, Joab? However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the belly with the butt end of the spear so that the spear came out at his back. Then he fell there and died on the spot. And it came about that all who came to that place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. So there's two scenes through these uh, several verses I just read. There's two scenes that we can see here. Both of them involve the sons of Zeruiah. Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. We know that from 1 Chronicles chapter 2 that uh, Zeruiah was actually David's sister, which of course means that these men were David's nephews. 
Now, we've met Abishai before. He was, he was the one that accompanied David into the camp of the sleeping Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 26. But just as we saw, the first of these scenes involves the youngest brother, Azahel. So if you can imagine, this is basically a major motion picture that's happening here. These, these two scenes would be the epic action sequence of this movie. As the armies clash, the forces of Abner begin to fall back. But wait, who is that? Who is that that is darting across the line and weaving through the, through the men of Abner's army? It's Azahel, and he is intent on killing Abner, the one who stands in the way of David's reign over all of Israel. You can picture a fight scene, any fight scene. You look at Avengers, you can look at, I mean, whatever it may be. I'm an Avengers fan myself. So I just think of like Captain America during the Wakanda battle. If anybody's ever seen it, you may know what I'm talking about. But he's like Captain America and Black Panther are just sprinting through the people and they're just taking everybody out left and right. But really their only mission is to to get that, the head man, right? And that's the picture that's going on here. You have the protagonist who is just running through the crowd and you're wondering to yourself, how are they not getting stabbed or shot or whatever, but it's a movie, yada, yada, you get the gist. Uh, and then they're chasing down the antagonist. And this, this is what it's like here. This is, what, this is what Azahel is doing towards Abner. But notice that as Abner tries to get away from the soldier, from, from Azahel, he's also trying to confirm that it is Azahel, Joab's brother. The one thing that Abner does not want to do is kill Joab's brother and turn a military clash into a personal blood feud. That's exactly what happens here. When Abner, the more experienced warrior, kills Azahel in this gruesome manner, takes his spear and shoves it through so far that it comes out of his back. And if you look again at the end of verse 23, you can tell You can tell that Azahel's death is not simply chalked up as simply another sad casualty of war. And all who came to this place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. It wasn't just another death. This one was important. This one had value. Not that that the other men weren't valuable, but this is Joab's brother. He is heartbroken. Again, you could look at this in a movie as you've seen it before where, where the protagonist, one of their loved ones dies. And uh, I reference personally, I reference uh, Spider-Man and when his aunt dies. Sorry uh, for spoilers if you haven't seen the movies. But uh, he's holding his aunt and he's just sobbing. He's crying. Or, 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 or Iron Man actually. When he actually is holding Spider-Man and then he drifts off and he goes and, you know, turns to dust. And Iron Man's sad as well. But any movie, those are just my examples. You could think of any movie where you see that, that, that sorrow, that horror, that, that, that madness, that anger that boils up inside of them because of that moment. This is what is happening here. This is horror. He's filled with horror and rage. And now we have the second scene. Starting in verse 24, But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner, and when the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which is in front of Gia, by the way of the wilderness of Gibeon. The sons of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became one band, and they stood on the top of a certain hill. Then Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the end? 
How long will you refrain from telling the people to turn back from following their brothers? Joab said, as God lives, if you had not spoken, surely then the people would have gone away in the morning, each from following his brother. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people halted and pursued Israel no longer, nor did they continue to fight anymore. And we started there in verse 24, and we see this is Azahel's, it is a relentless pursuit of Abner, turns into Joab and Abishai's relentless pursuit of Abner. But the chase continues all day, and it is only when Abner gains the high ground and carefully appeals to Joab that both commanders, they both see a way out for their weary forces, a way out in which they can both maintain their dignity. And we look at verses 29 through 32. We can conclude these accounts here. Abner and his men then went through Arabah all that night. So they crossed the Jordan, walked all morning, and came to Menahem. Then Joab returned from following Abner when he had gathered all the people together. Nineteen of David's servants besides Azahel were missing. But the servants of David had struck down many of Benjamin and Abner's men, so that 360 men had died. And they took up Azahel and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. Then Joab and his men went all the night until the day dawned at Hebron. So let's put this into a context here. Let's just, let's take it from here and I'm going to try to bring it down here for everybody. I know Old Testament isn't always the easiest thing to understand when reading, let alone listening to it. But what's happening here is Abner and his men, they went all through the night. They went all through uh, Arabah. And this actually is the valley that ran along the Jordan River. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanam. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Azahel. So when we're adding Azahel, there's 20 men that had been missing from this battle. But the servants of David had struck down, uh, struck down 300 and 60 of Abner's men. 360 versus 20, that's pretty good odds. I'd say David's men did pretty well, right? You know that David is anointed just by that. I mean, yes, the 20 lives lost, tragic still, but 20 to, 20 to 360, that is huge. And you know that God had anointed and God and his hand uh, was upon him. And they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men, they marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. So we see here both of the armies march hard. They march all night just to get home. But David's forces stop in Bethlehem, and they bury Azahel before they can return to Hebron. But the real key, the real key to this small section is the numbers the writers give. It's the 20 men that were killed in this major battle compared to the 360 compared to Abner's side. If this includes the 12 warriors who died in Gibeon, then technically only eight men of Judah were slain in the clash between the two armies. That is incredible odds. That speaks to the anointment, the anointing that was on David and his men during this time. At this point, I think it's fair to ask the question, why? 
Why did God allow it to work itself out this way? If David is truly God's anointed, why didn't God simply place David on the throne over all of Israel? Couldn't God have done that? Yes, of course, of course he could have, but he didn't. I think he allowed things to work out this way for a couple of reasons. First, as we talked about last time, uh, last time, the last time I spoke, so this would have been three weeks ago when we were in 2 Samuel. As I talked about then, in a world that has turned away from God, in which those created by God want to play God, in that kind of world, we need to be reminded there is no smooth sailing for God's people. There will always be opposition for those who walk by faith and not by sight. Second, in the face of opposition and trials and sufferings and difficulties, God wants to remind us that in spite of those things, he is always, always, always working to establish his true kingdom. The first readers of 2 Samuel needed to know that no matter what, no matter what political turmoil was taking place inside Israel, no matter what regional troubles were threatening Israel from the outside, no matter the challenges, God was always working to establish his promised kingdom. And even long after, even long after David's time, even a thousand years after David, when Israel was demoralized by the cruel and crushing heel of the Roman Empire, even then, God was at work to fully and finally establish this kingdom. I want to take you guys, I'm going to bounce around a little bit to a couple verses, but I think they're important. We go to Luke chapter 1, verses 30 and through 33. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. The establishing of the kingdom of David. This is a picture for us this morning. This is a picture for us of the establishing of the kingdom of the son of David, Jesus Christ. And through what was written down for us, God wants to encourage you. Now, I think, I, I honestly think we could think about it in, in a very broad way in terms of the success of and the expansion of and the establishment of the church, the capital C church. But without letting go of that this morning, I want you to think about this in terms of the establishment of the kingdom of God within our own hearts. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. And we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, does, this, does that include the times of struggle, the times of failure, the times of frustration? Does it include war between the house of you and the house of sin? Yes, all those things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you see what Paul is saying here in Romans 8? Do you see what he's saying? If all things are working for our good, and our good is to become more like Christ the King, then that means God is always working 
He is always working in all things to establish his kingdom in your life, in my life. And that controversially, it controversially means God is always working to frustrate the plan of our enemies. And if we look back to our passage, I think God also wants, us to, remind, wants to remind us of several points. First, the God's kingdom establishing work does not preclude tragic setbacks. We're going to have them. Just like the death of the 12, just like the death of Azahel. If you are a follower of Christ, there will be tragic setbacks in your life because of sin. There will be times of defeat that will spiritually stop you dead in your tracks. There will be. Remember how Paul spoke to the Galatians. In Galatians 5, we're going to go to verse 1, verses 4, and verse 13. For freedom, Christ has set us free. But you have fallen away from grace. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. These disciples were struggling with pride and false teaching. But notice, Paul doesn't deny God's establishing work in the lives of these Christians. Instead, he warns them. He warns them and he calls them to repentance and reformation. And he could call, I mean, this, this, this letter, this, it's the same thing being spoken to us today. He, we're called to repentance and reformation. The second is that God's kingdom establishing work does involve a relentless pursuit. David's warriors were dedicated. They were dedicated, were they not? They were relentless in the midst of the battle. Shouldn't we do the same thing, especially as servants of an even greater king than David? The fact that God is most certainly fulfilling his work should not cause us to sit back and kick us and kick up our feet. We shouldn't. We can't just sit back and kick up our feet and just wait for the time to come. It's time we must take action. We must have a relentless pursuit of Jesus. It should inspire us to action with confidence that there is real power at work in our works. Remember what the writer of the book of Hebrews said to his readers. This is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Like Azahel, Let's not turn aside to the right or to the left. Let's run the race. Run the race that is set before us today. Third point here. God's kingdom establishing work does manifest itself in multiple blessings. Do 
Did you notice all the ways that these verses provided examples of how David's kingdom was getting stronger and stronger? Abner was beaten before David's men, and Abner suffered major casualties, while most of David's men were protected. And when we get into chapter 3, here in the, in the coming weeks, we will find six blessings given to David. While Saul's house had fallen, and with him all but one of his sons, David is blessed with six sons. And even though none of these sons will carry on the kingdom, they are evidence of God's abundance. And that's in spite of the fact that David was violating Deuteronomy, where, where it warns Israel's kings about the multiplying wives, right? By grace, by grace, God was continuing to establish David's kingdom for God's own glory and his purposes in Christ. In the same way, we need to do better recognizing all the ways that God is working in our lives and how far he has truly brought us. It's easy to fall into the trap of a spiritual tunnel vision where we get so focused on what we think God is not doing in the moment that we forget the amazing things that God has done in the past and very often the recent past. I'm gonna go back to Hebrews one more time here in chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on, the, on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Life Church, brothers and sisters, God has been, is, and will continue to fully and finally establish his kingdom. While battles and skirmishes remain, the war has been won on the cross, that cross where Jesus cried out, it is finished. If you have come to Jesus in faith, trusting in him and him alone, trust only in his grace and his victory, then God wants to encourage you this morning that even when you feel weaker and weaker, God is making you stronger and stronger. And maybe you're here today and you haven't fully put all your faith in him and declared him as Lord and Savior over your life. Maybe if you haven't made that decision, I wanna give you that opportunity. We are saved by grace through faith alone. There is, no pre, there, there is a prerequisite to saving, to our saving grace, and that is having faith. We must have faith. You do not need to know all the answers or honestly even understand it all. That is, that is faith, that's faith itself. And maybe you, you're here today and you've made that decision before, but you drifted. You're not entirely sure of where you stand or, 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 or what a relationship with Jesus is really like. Maybe it seemed just, just very surface level and you wanna dive deeper today. Well, he is fully pursuant of you. 
And he wants that with you. He wants that relationship with you. The relentless pursuit that we have for Jesus, he has that relentless pursuit for us. He will leave the 99 for the one. I want you to come back today. With every head bowed right here in this moment, every eyes closed, all the eyes closed in here, I wanna, I wanna provide an opportunity. I wanna provide an opportunity for you today Maybe you came in here and you've already placed your faith in Jesus, but you're feeling weaker and weaker. Maybe you haven't made that decision at all. Or maybe it's time to try again. If that's you today, I just, I just ask you, I'm not, not going to embarrass you, not going to do anything of the sort. But I just ask you, raise your head and just show me your eyes. Just look at me. I see you. I see you, I see you. I see you, amen, I see you, I see you. I just wanna pray this prayer over you this morning and pray it to yourself out loud. We come before you, God. Our hearts are troubled we're feeling weaker. We don't know what that relationship is really like with you, Jesus. God, we want that relationship. I want that relationship with you today. I declare the name of Jesus over my life. I devote my life to you, Jesus, this morning. I know that there is power in your name that has set me free. The bondage that I have walked in here with this morning, it is set free in the name of Jesus. It is no longer binding us down and holding us back. It is time for us to let go and let God. We need you, Jesus. We need you, Lord, now more than ever today. We praise you, God, for the grace that we have received through the faith that we are placing in you this morning, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. His kingdom is being fully established in your heart today. Fully established in your heart. That, my friends, is good news. Let it encourage you this morning. Let it drive you forward in the relentless pursuit of growth and grace. Let it cause you to look even more carefully for and rejoice even more deeply in his work in your life this morning.